This message comes from Capital One. Your business faces unique challenges and opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services backed by the strength of a top 10 commercial bank. Visit CapitalOne.com slash commercial. Member FDIC. This is Fresh Air. I'm Tanya Mosley. Writing a book never felt quite right for Academy Award-nominated actor and producer Elliot Page, although he'd been asked to write one on more than one occasion. The problem was, he says, is that he could never sit still long enough to complete the task, his brain consumed by his discomfort in his own skin. But now that he has come into his full self as a transgender man, Page has completed what he felt was impossible— writing a memoir titled Page Boy about the joys and perils of fame, including pressures from Hollywood to conform into the gender binary. His memoir is full of intimate stories from secret love affairs to battling body image and his relationship struggles with family. Page is known for his roles in movies like Juno, Inception, and X-Men. In 2020, he came out as a trans man. And soon after, his character in the third season of the Netflix series The Umbrella Academy also transitioned. In addition to being an actor, Page is a documentary filmmaker. In 2019, he directed There's Something in the Water, a film that explores the disproportionate effects of environmental damage on Black, Canadian, and First Nations communities in Nova Scotia. Page was born in Halifax and was a child actor in Canada before his breakout role in the 2007 film Juno, in which he earned an Academy Award nomination. He has also been nominated for several awards, including a Primetime Emmy and two BAFTA Awards. In 2021, he became the first openly trans man to appear on the cover of Time magazine. Elliot Page's new memoir, Page Boy, is out this week. Elliot, welcome to Fresh Air. Thank you so much. Hello. You know, every time I sit down to read a memoir, I think about something that writer Casey Gerald has said, that he does not recommend writing one unless your life depends on it. Basically, that the need to share his truth was just that urgent and that dire. I'm wondering with you, did writing this book feel like it was an imperative to you? And if so, why? Well, I think there's a a couple components here. I think in many ways, there was some organic surge of words that did need to come out. Like it felt um, like something clicked and I sat down and I started writing. And like, for example, that first chapter in the book, Paula, that is the first thing I sat down and, and wrote. And it did just come out like just sort of stream of consciousness. And then I kind of couldn't stop. And I think in in many ways, the feeling was so exhilarating um, because, like I, I say in the opening of the book, it, it really, anything like this felt impossible before and, quite frankly, it was. Like, I was just so uncomfortable that literally the thought of sitting and being able to create for hours was just not imaginable. And also in this specific time and climate, just so rife with attacks against, you know, trans people and... Um, having this strange life that's ended up with this platform I, I have, it it sort of felt like these two things collided in many ways and, and the time felt right. That timing that you're talking about, this overemphasis on focus on trans people as an issue, as a problem in our society, it also converged with this time period of 
2020, when we were all cloistered in our homes, it was such a dark period. What was it about that time period? I know many folks say that even despite the darkness, having that time to hear one's own voice allowed them to slow down enough. Was that also the case for you, you being able to actually hear yourself? Yes, um, absolutely. Uh, In many ways, I think not having a part to go play, you know, uh, a female character, um, you know, having to be in that space and and wear that clothing. And and actually, I don't actually talk about this in the book, but I was attached to a film that was going to require sort of, you know, extra amount of specific, you know, uh, you know, femininity, feminine clothes or, and I was in like absolute distress, like about like having to do this role, like to such an extreme degree and noticing just how profoundly it was, it was affecting me and how I couldn't wrap my head around doing it. And then that sort of, you know, everything was put on hold because of everything we experienced um, during that time in the beginning of the pandemic. And and then I did, yes, have the space to sit with myself and reflect, which became you know, very difficult in some moments, but ultimately led me to um, be able to get quiet enough to finally allow myself to acknowledge and express my truth. That distress that you felt about that role that you were going to take on before um, everything was shut down during the pandemic... That was a feeling that you had felt for quite some time, really almost with every role that you took, you had to reconcile with yourself and um, have a conversation with yourself, but also have a conversation with those who were on the set about what you would and wouldn't wear or do or portray. Um, It sounds like it took an overwhelming amount of energy to, to push in that way. It did, and I also understand why people were probably confused and 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 baffled by it you know uh you're an actor why can't you you know pardon the pun but transform and you know um and perform and i was baffled myself i did and didn't understand it you know um why i was just so uncomfortable and in particular, because I would play roles where the clothes probably wouldn't even seem that, you know, femme or what have you. But I was still just so uncomfortable. Like, even a warm-up coat, you know, cut for, like, you know, um, would make me crawl on my skin. And it kind of just got worse and worse and worse. Um, But my ability to start saying what I could and couldn't handle that strength came up. Like when I did sign on to Umbrella Academy, I, you know, so lucky to work with Steve Blackman, the showrunner. One of the first things I said was, I'd love to do this, but like, I have to be in control of what I'm going to wear, you know, for example. Because I couldn't have imagined doing something for years, like having to wake up and go to work and um, dress a certain way. You just said something really important when you were saying that you couldn't even really figure out why you were so uncomfortable. Your book really lays out for us clearly, though, your involvement of understanding of yourself. Actually, the steps that took you to your ultimate understanding of you as a transgender person. Can I have you read an excerpt of the book 
to set the scene of this excerpt that we're going to read, you are describing those early years of your life growing up in Nova Scotia and the early feelings you experienced about your identity. Can I have you start with the word 11? 11 was the age. 11 was the age I sensed a shift from boy to girl without my consent. As an adult, I would say, I just want to be a 10-year-old boy. Whenever dysphoria belted out its annoying song, a pop hit that you know the words to and don't know why. It's hard to explain gender dysphoria to people who don't experience it. It's an awful voice in the back of your head. You assume everyone else hears it, but they don't. Eleven was when I last felt present in my flesh. Not suspended above, transient and frantic to return. It was a departure of sorts, a path to a false identity and a shell of a disguise. Entering witness protection, he'd seen too much. I'd never heard anyone describe an experience as a voice in your head that just won't stop, an annoying pop hit that you know the words to, but you don't know why. Gender dysphoria is this sense of unease a person feels because of a mismatch between their biological sex and their gender identity. And what were those messages that annoying pop song in your head was telling you as you moved through the world, um, beginning at 11, kind of this thing that you thought everyone else heard, but only you could hear? Yeah, it's, um, how do you describe it? (laughs) It's like a constant um, noise, a constant feeling that something wrong, like a a sensation in a voice that's like telling you to flee. One of the questions that trans and, and queer people often hear is, when did you know that you were trans or gay? And you write in the book that this question always feels like it's code for, I don't believe you. Um, I think a lot of people think that they're asking the right thing when they ask that question. Can you explain that a little more? Sure, and I think it's possible to ask that question in a sensitive way. Like, don't get me wrong, but I think in many ways it does um, It does feel like a prove it or something, you know? Um, and you get tired of having to explain who you are or um, justify it or um, earn someone's, you know, approval in in, in some sense. Yeah. Before 11 years old, you know, that is kind of the marker. You're just a child before 11. There are gender expectations, but they really start to shift at 11. Um, Can we talk for a moment about private play, as you would call it? It was a big part of your childhood. You go off into your room alone, and you dream up these scenarios Do you remember what you'd be doing in private play, what some of your favorite um, things to act out were? What kinds of worlds would you create? (laughs) Oh, my God, I love this. I'm like, I wish as adults we could still do this because I think back to that. I'm like, that was so fun. Why can't I? I guess I'm an actor, so I do it a little bit, but it's it's just not the same. Um, well, I would usually create, like, yeah, like, very elaborate adventures. I had a bunk bed, so I'd make really cool forts and, you know, with blankets or towels, like, create, you know, rooms. And then I'd go off on some expedition, you know, potentially trying to make, you know, my way through the lava floor, what have you. And then 
I'd it's like I'd be be off away. <laughs> and I love I write love letters and typically sign it like love Jason or like love Jake or like something <laughs> like that. And um go into these sort of really elaborate scenarios that involved adventure and love and <laughs> I've off I have attributed to potentially helping me, you know, with my acting in some level, you know. Had you conceived of being anything else before then? Did you have any other dreams for yourself as a kid? Nothing actually very concrete now that I think back. Um, the thought of being an actor wasn't something that was remotely on my mind or what felt like a part of reality that felt like a very distant world, you know, um, I really loved acting. I was in the drama club at school and very invested in that. My mom recalls me really young wanting to go see plays that I wouldn't have understood, but was like very adamant about going to see them, you know. So there was clearly something something about it that really drew me in. Um, and then it kind of just happened. It's really interesting, you going back to thinking, uh, it was always there, your understanding of yourself. There was just a block and a barrier. You actually say in the book that it was during the making of Pit Pony that you intensely felt your gender dysphoria. You describe that, that discomfort of having to wear tights and dresses and barrettes in your hair. Do you remember yeah. voicing it to the adults at the time, too? Yeah, and I think... That was such an interesting time because I sort of um, pushed it enough like how I wanted to look uh, to the degree that my mom did finally kind of go, you know, okay. <laughs> so by like 9, 10, um, I really was, you know, in some periods existing really how I wanted to. Um, I think I say in the book it was just the sort of like recital or Christmas party or... Uh, you know, these various occasions where I'd be sort of forced into a dress or something. But um, the age of finally sort of looking how, I shouldn't say finally, obviously it's a you know, young age, uh, at 9, 10, to becoming an actor and, and playing these um, female characters, that I felt that significant shift. Um, and going to work every day and, you know, enjoying it. What an incredible opportunity. It's like I loved it in so many ways. And then there was this aspect that was not enjoyable. And again, that feeling of just utter confusion. I would just look at my, you know, co-stars who were boys my age and just, you know, sorry to repeat myself, but I just baffled. I just, I, I couldn't understand it. Because they were allowed to be who they are. They were just they were allowed to be who they were. And a part of me knew, like, it wasn't just about clothes. There was this media frenzy around your sexuality after Juno came out in 2007. You play a pregnant teenager. And ironically, you write that the role made you feel a sense of autonomy. What was it about playing Juno that made you feel that way? Well, I think... You know, firstly, when I, like, I remember when I first read the script, I was in my bedroom in Halifax, and I just couldn't put it down. And the just the first few pages, I was like, oh my goodness, this is, 
something, you know, this character was just so fresh, the way she spoke, her humor, uh, her kind of agency in many ways. Um, and, you know, when I was fortunate enough to get cast in that movie um, and in pre-production and and wardrobe fittings, um, I, you know, literally went to used clothing stores with producer and, like, pulling out, you know, how I thought she should look and dress and all these things and felt like it was a real collaborative process in, you know, bringing that character to life and, and off the page. And at the time, um, you know, it did feel like something relatively new, something that a certain representation that wasn't, you know, frequently available necessarily. And and I think that aspect of the character did seem to to connect to people, especially a lot of young women. Yeah, it was a breakout role. It was it really, it made your name then more of a household name in many ways, but it wasn't a celebration of who you were. So you were able to have this collaboration with the folks you worked with to create the character in the way that you felt was as true to the character. But then when you had to promote the actual movie, you were forced to be or conform in a way that was not who you were. Um, You actually suffered from panic attacks during this period, so much so that you sometimes pass out and you write that there was a major disconnect over your dreams of success and what others wanted for you as your star was rising. What would have been your dreams for success at the time? What would have success on your terms at that time, now knowing what probably the heart of the issue was, but what would success at that time have looked like? Gosh, just being able to celebrate the wonderful experience that it was making that film and the fact that, you know, the degree that it was connecting with so many people and um, and being able to experience all of that as my authentic self, you know, and not have, I think, this certain element that I brought to the table that really benefited that character in that film and then, you know, have that be squashed and in the name of conformity, in the name of um, gender expectations. Did you ever feel like quitting at that at any point during absolutely. that? Absolutely. Absolutely. I thought about quitting all the time. What stopped you? I didn't know what else I'd do. <laughs> I didn't go to, you know, I did think like, oh, maybe I should, I didn't, you know, I didn't go to university or anything, so... I thought, well, maybe I'd go back to school, but I didn't necessarily know what I'd... I, not back to school, I didn't, but, you know, go to school, I, I didn't, but I didn't know what I'd want to study. And then I think it was actually after finishing in Inception, even, I packed up my apartment in Los Angeles and went back to Halifax and was like, I don't think I want to do this. But then I just... I always kept coming back and doing it. <laughs> but in many ways... I think I I just I I did love the actual aspect of acting that incredible magical sensation that it can allow for these moments you create with other people and feel you know it's an escape and also you feel more present than I was probably feeling in life in in in, in many moments and 
so I also sort of like resented that the joy I felt in that aspect of the job was disappearing or felt like it'd been taken away in some ways. Our guest today is actor and director Elliot Page. He has a new memoir called Page Boy, which chronicles his rise to fame in Hollywood and coming into his understanding of himself as a transgender man. I'm Tanya Mosley, and this is Fresh Air. This message comes from Apple Pay. Everyone knows that credit card numbers can be stolen. But you know what's harder to steal? Your face. With Apple Pay, your purchases are authenticated by you, thanks to Face ID, making your smile your signature. Just double-click, smile, and tap. With each tap, your card number and your purchases stay secured. Pay the Apple way with your compatible device anywhere contactless payment is accepted. This message comes from NPR sponsor Viore, a new perspective on performance apparel. Clothing designed with premium fabrics, built to move in, styled for life. For 20% off your first purchase, go to viore.com NPR. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, we're taking center stage. Introducing NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of Black-led stories from NPR's podcasts. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. If you're just joining us today, our guest is actor and director Elliot Page. He has a new memoir called Page Boy, which chronicles his rise to fame in Hollywood and coming into his understanding of himself as a transgender man. You came out as gay um, in 2014. Society still conflates sexuality with identity, but it seems like in the case of coming into your gender identity, and for many trans people, sexual orientation might be one of the first steps to getting to that point. Um, we watched you in real time, first come out as gay and then come out as trans, almost like you were searching for the right fit. Is that how you would describe it? Yeah, in some ways, I think coming out as gay is, was a massive step for me to getting closer to my truth and where I ultimately needed to be. It, it really, really was. I mean, I felt like... Just a huge weight lifted uh, immediately, like overnight, um, because that really was just so challenging and insufferable being as closeted as I was and for as long as I was. You know, I didn't come out till I was 27. Um, but that wasn't the end of the story, <laughs> you know, and uh, and did it, it made a drastic change in my life. But the sensation I had in terms of the relationship with my, my gender was, was not going away. And in some ways, you know, I felt so much more comfortable in many ways with queer women, environments with queer women. Um, but then there'd this also be this aspect where, in a certain way, things would start to feel worse in moments because I expected to feel at home. I expected, you know, the sensation of, oh, finally, and... I still knew something about me was different. And I really did have an idea what it was. It's like I think back where friends bring up me talking about saying, oh, I think I'm trans. I feel like I really want to transition. Like, in moments years years ago that I, I'm like, wait, what? I said that when we were down by the river? You know, you're just like I realized the amount that I actually was talking about it and then the amount of... Um, 
you know, that I would talk myself out of it. You know, I'd figure out ways around it because it did just feel like that's too much. That's too big. I, I can't. And just shove it away and shove it away and shove it away till finally I stopped doing that. I just want to talk a little bit about the depictions of trans and queer people in Hollywood, because that's also part of it. If you can't actually see yourself as a working actor, if you were truly yourself, then what what will you do? And so, like, first, the, the is he or isn't he around sexuality seems to be oppressive and oppressively pervasive, almost like queer actors have to sign a pact of conforming to the binary in order to be successful. Were you aware of the intensity of scrutiny over sexuality before Juno? Um, Yeah, I experienced it a bit, like when I uh, made the film, an X-Men movie when I was 18, and it premiered at Cannes. I'm not sure why. And I remember just being in this, like, very tight, like, gold dress, you know, and my publicist at the time, like, the the face just brightening up and, you know, people just going on and on about how you, like, look like you'd accomplish this feat, you know, like, like, given a reward for, like, you know, donning this, you know, what felt like a costume for me, essentially. But... It wasn't until Juno where that was just taken to a whole new level and, you know, intensely pressured to dress a certain way and act a certain way and not be seen with my girlfriend. You know, I didn't go to the Oscars with my, who I was in love with at the time. You know, she didn't come. That had to be painful. Did you celebrate even the the nomination? I'm going to be honest, not too much. And it feels like such a complicated thing to talk about because you realize, like, who wants to hear an actor who got nominated for an Oscar be like, oh, that was a difficult time. Like, I get it. Like, I do understand. Or like, oh, boo-hoo, you had to put on the dress. Like, I don't not get that. Um, But I wasn't happy. I was not having a good time. I just wanted that period to be over. And, you know, it didn't mean it wasn't cool. Obviously, it drastically impacts your career and helps your career. But I was not doing so well, mental health-wise. It was not celebratory. When you received that call, it was just a feeling of what? Thank goodness this thing, I guess, happened that we've been (laughs) basically like, you know, you, it's... I think it's, you know, obvious people see that whole kind of award season time. You're essentially campaigning. You're going to all these parties and all these events. It's this buildup. People, everyone has this expectation and, you know, and it happened. And that's really cool. Don't get me wrong. It's like, I really loved that film. I loved making it. I loved playing that character. I love that people still, when I'm walking down the street, when I come up and say, oh, my God, Juno's one of my favorite movies. Like, how cool. You know, it's it's really special. Um, but that whole aspect of it, when it was doing well and what have you, it wasn't something I could could really feel at the time. And I just felt very overwhelmed and very um, quite lonely, I think. In the book, you share a few vivid stories of groomers in Hollywood, directors and people in power who took advantage of you when you were underage or barely 18, One woman that you worked 
with. She was a crew member on a production with you. You were barely 18. She basically forced herself onto you. And a few years later, you all were on a set working together. And she came to you and said, we had fun, right? We listened to music and we had fun, right? What did you think she was trying to say to you when she came to you and made those statements? To me, that sounded like you're not going to tell anybody, right? (laughs) You know, that to me was the subtext of that. Um, What I could sense is her knowing that that was wrong, that she took advantage of someone who was quite young and um, I'm sure felt bad about it. But instead of having that conversation, I I think panicked. Uh, And at least to me, that's what the subtext felt like. We just had fun, right? You're not going to tell anybody about what happened. Let's take a short break. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Elliot Page. He has a new memoir titled Page Boy about his life, career, and coming out as trans. Elliot stars in the Netflix series The Umbrella Academy. His breakout role in the 2007 movie Juno earned him an Academy Award nomination. In addition to acting, Page is a documentary filmmaker, director, and social justice advocate. This is Fresh Air. This message comes from Capital One, offering commercial solutions you can bank on. Now more than ever, your business faces unique challenges and opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services, all tailored to your short- and long-term goals. Backed by the strength and stability of a top-10 commercial bank, their dedicated experts work with you to build lasting success. Explore the possibilities at CapitalOne.com slash commercial. A member FDIC. Support for NPR and the following message come from the American Cancer Society. Dr. Alpa Patel leads a team that researches cancer risk factors, and she shares how they work to make a difference. We've learned so much about what lifestyle choices can lower your risk of cancer. Um, We then go on to actually translate that science to provide information that's evidence-based to the public through things like our guidelines for cancer prevention. To learn more, go to cancer.org. Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Can we talk, because I have to ask you, can we talk for a moment about... um, your chosen name of Elliot. Please tell me that it's true that you were inspired by the character Elliot in E.T. <laughs> well, I very much was. That's when I was a kid and, and still is one of my favorite movies. And I always loved Elliot and envisioned being able to, you know, when I was a kid, be like him, look like him, etc. And obviously what I related to so, so much, uh, so it's not necessarily why I named myself Elliot, but, I'm, you know, it's uh, it's always been so special to me, that movie. Why did you choose the, the name Elliot? Well, I really love the name and always have and also realized that even in the past had, like, used the name sometimes, whether it was, like, a Facebook account or 
um, you know what, an email address or something. Um, and I almost had forgotten about that. And, uh, and of course it's, you know, similar to my, uh, old name and it's just always been a name I loved. I even used to think like, oh, if I did have a kid, I'd love to name them Elliot, but it seems too similar to my name. That seems sort of, you know, (laughs) but yeah, here I am. After you came out as transgender, Netflix's The Umbrella Academy changed the gender of the role you were playing from Vanya, also known as number seven to Victor. What was the process of crafting that episode to make sure that it was done right? Well, we were really fortunate that um, Thomas Page McBee became involved, um, who I actually first met because he wrote on Tales of the City. He's a stunning writer. He has a very gorgeous memoir called Amateur. Um, If you haven't read it, I highly, highly recommend. And uh, so he became involved and essentially... Really, myself, Thomas, and and Steve, we we just, you know, talked about what could be a cool way to do it and to, you know, make it this moment that is a moment. And, of course, the character still has these sort of, you know, sweet emotional interactions with their, you know, their siblings and what have you. But ultimately, it's, they come out and we move on. (laughs) You know, I mean, that's, you know, it's not some massive, huge, you know, long plot all surrounding, like, sort of turmoil or people's reactions or, you know, uh, wanted it to be this sort of very natural, organic uh, process, which in a lot of ways it is. It, you know, doesn't mean it's not without its certain difficulties or obstacles, of course, um, but wanted to have this just sort of genuine, sincere human experience and and then let Victor be Victor, you know, and get back to saving the world. Your mother was a public school teacher, and you mentioned to us most of your mother's responses to your identity. You've reconciled. It comes from her desire to protect you from this world. There is a passage in your book that is really moving about your mother's evolved understanding of who you are. You write that The movement for trans liberation impacts us all because it gives us all the freedom to explore what it means to be ourselves. And you saw this in your mother. You saw her evolving into her being able to be more liberated and come into herself. In what ways? Gosh, I just... I don't know, like something in my mom just like through all of this, I've just seen someone blossom in so many ways. She seems more embodied. She seems less self-conscious. There's something in her that's shifted and opened up. And and I, I do think it, you know, it does correspond to my journey and our journey together in, in, in a lot of ways. People who read this book will find out just how much you love romantic love. But you detail um, a lot of juicy bits in the book, which will be fun for readers. Um, 
But the purpose of these stories, I'm guessing, is not to offer the salaciousness around that, but to show the internal damage of being closeted. Um, You call love an irresistible escape because it's transcendent, but you don't think you've ever really felt it before. Um, Have your feelings changed now that you are living as a truer version of yourself? Have you experienced, are you able to to accept or feel deep love? Yeah, and I think in in many ways, like, I have in my life, absolutely. And for me, that passage in the book is so much about, like, is it, is it real love if you did feel like you weren't there? Is it real love if you did just feel like you were, like, clinging because you didn't know what else to do, you know? Um, like, what is it actually? Uh, is it drug-like? You know, the serotonin highs and lows of you know, either being in something closeted and the parts that are brutal and difficult and then the parts where you're in your bubble and it's the best, you know, and you do love each other and there is the healing and the beauty and the joy in it, of course. Um, But now I think that the big difference is I'm really able to be alone and I love it and I didn't know how to function by myself before. Like, I really didn't. So this newfound sense of being able to sit with myself and, and exist on my own is is very... It's quite thrilling, actually. And um, so I'm liking being alone right now. And, um, you know, I look, you know, falling in love sounds great like that'll come when it comes but um i am enjoying being alone right now i've heard gender non-conforming writer and activist alok vaitmenem um say that when they are called brave and revolutionary it's painful because the implicit message is that it's brave to be yourself in a world that doesn't actually want you to exist and it's painful because it's a constant reminder that you are other is brave the right word for you and is there a better one? I mean, I think I feel similar to what they said. And also, I can't help but just think of, you know, the position I'm in and, and the resources I have and the access to health care I've had. And if something drastic happens, if I get death threats, I can hire security. I can, you know, I don't represent the majority of realities for trans people um, disproportionately deal with unemployment, experience homelessness, incarceration, violence, you know, particularly black trans women. And, you know, it's the complication even with just visibility itself uh, that I have. And so words like brave and whatnot, I, I suppose... I guess, yeah, it can make me feel uncomfortable, if that makes sense. Elliot, Page, it's been a pleasure to talk with you, and thank you for your book. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Elliot Page is an Academy Award-nominated actor, director, and producer. He's written a new book about his life and coming out as a trans man titled Page Boy. Coming up, our book critic Maureen Corrigan reviews two new suspense novels with a twist. This is Fresh Air. This message comes from NPR sponsor BetterHelp. 
When life is flying by, it's important to take a moment to hit pause, set intentions, and reset. That's where BetterHelp Online Therapy comes in. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Visit BetterHelp.com NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from NPR sponsor Allianz Travel Insurance. From quick weekend getaways to international vacations, an annual travel plan from Allianz Travel Insurance can protect your adventures for the next 365 days. And with benefits starting as close as 100 miles from home, you can have peace of mind wherever you go. Get a quote at AllianzTravelInsurance.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor Dell Technologies. Now your ideas don't have to wait. Dell Technologies and Intel are pushing what technology can do, so great ideas can happen right now. Bring your ideas to life at Dell.com. Welcome to now. For some people, like our book critic Maureen Corrigan, summer and suspense go together like arsenic and old lace. Here's her review of two new suspense novels with a twist. To kick off this summer reading season, I'm recommending two suspense novels that gleefully overturn the age-old woman-in-trouble plot. Megan Abbott is a superstar of the suspense genre who's generated a host of bestsellers like The Turnout and Dare Me, which was made into a series for Netflix. But what Abbott's fans may not know is that she holds a Ph.D. in literature and wrote a dissertation on the figure of the macho tough guy in the mysteries of writers like Dashiell Hammett, James M. Cain, and Chester Himes. In other words, Abbott is one smart dame when it comes to sussing out the sexism inherent in those mysteries that so many of us love. Her latest novel is called Beware the Woman, and it's inspired not so much by hard-boiled mysteries, but by another hallowed suspense genre, the gothic, which almost always features a woman running in terror through the halls of a maze-like mansion. As this novel's title suggests, maybe it's the men here who should start running. At the outset of Beware the Woman, our narrator, a 30-something pregnant woman named Jacy, is driving with her new husband, Jed, deep into the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. They're going to visit Jed's widowed father, a retired physician named Dr. Ash, whom Jacy has only met once, fleetingly. In fact, J.C. married Jed only a few months after they first met, but she's so in love she feels she's known him forever. Honey, we all marry strangers, J.C.'s mom wearily told her on the day of the wedding. In this case, mother really does know best. The family cottage, as Jed had called it, turns out to be much grander, like a hunting lodge in an old movie. And inside, in addition to Dr. Ash, the lodge is occupied by a caretaker, the chilly Mrs. Brandt, who halfway into the novel tersely mutters to J.C., maybe you should go home. Too late, 
By then, J.C. is having problems with her pregnancy, and the bed rest Dr. Ash and his physician friend have prescribed is beginning to feel like house arrest. If you detected strains of Daphne du Maurier's gothic masterpiece, Rebecca, in that plot summary, you'd be half right. Beware the woman is Rebecca wedded to Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale, along with the feverish psychological twists and turns that Abbott's novels are celebrated for. Beware the woman explores the timely topic of women's autonomy over their own bodies, especially during pregnancy. Katie Williams also riffs on some hallowed traditions in her ingenious debut suspense novel called My Murder. I'm thinking here of noir films like Sunset Boulevard and DOA, whose voiceovers are narrated by dead men talking. In the very first sentence of William's novel, a young wife and mother named Lou tells us, I was supposed to be getting dressed for the party, the first since my murder. It's hard to move on from that arresting first sentence, but eventually we readers learn that Lou, along with some other women identified as victims of the same serial killer, have been brought back to life by a government-funded replication commission that grew them from the cells of their murdered originals. Williams is adept at swirling sci-fi and domestic suspense plot lines into this unpredictable tale. For instance, one night, Lou's husband Silas arrives home to tell her one of his workmates has alerted him to a new virtual reality game. It's a game of you, Silas said woodenly, of your murder, Lou. He put his hands to his face. I'm so sorry. Someone made a game out of your murder. Indeed, the game allows players to step into the role of Lou or any one of the other murdered women and navigate the landscape of city streets and parks where their bodies were found while trying to evade the serial killer. The point of the game, Lou quickly understands, is to instill fear in women, a fear she has to combat when she begins investigating inconsistencies in her own murder case. Instilling fear in women is also the consequence, intended or not, of so much violent content in popular culture, including suspense fiction. Both Abbott and Williams push back against the misogyny of the genre and do some cloning and regenerating of their own in these two eerie and inventive suspense novels. Maureen Corrigan is a professor of literature at Georgetown University. She reviewed Beware the Woman by Megan Abbott and My Murder by Katie Williams. On the next Fresh Air, gun control activist David Hogg Hogg became a prominent gun reform activist after surviving the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School shooting in Parkland, Florida, which killed 17 of his classmates and injured 17 others. We talk with him about his work, the mental health challenges that come with experiencing gun violence, and his efforts to change public perception about guns. I hope you can join us. 
To keep up with what's on the show and get highlights of our interviews, follow us on Instagram at NPR Fresh Air. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our senior producer today is Teresa Madden. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Roberta Shorrock, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Saman, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. Thea Challoner directed today's show. For Terry Gross, I'm Tanya Mosley. This message comes from NPR sponsor Acorn TV. Stream stories from around the world, from sinister suspense to charming comedies and clever crime dramas like My Life is Murder, starring Lucy Lawless. Visit acorn.tv for a 30-day free trial with promo code NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com slash switch. All that sitting and swiping, your body is adapting to your technology. Learn how and what you can do about it. I really felt like the cloud in my brain kind of dissipated. Once I started realizing what a difference these little bricks were making, there's no turning back for me. Take NPR's Body Electric Challenge Listen to the series wherever you get your podcasts.